This is Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. This is a sermon for the second Sunday of Advent, December 5th, 2021, offered at St. Barnabas Episcopal Church in Roanoke, Alabama. The principal text for the sermon is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the introduction of John the Baptist. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I know I'm far enough east in the state that the next sentence I say is a little bit dangerous, but I have a confession to make that I lived in Tuscaloosa for 12 years. 12 long years while I was in law school and practiced law there. And Tuscaloosa, perhaps in spite of its football program, really is a lovely town to live in, right? It's sort of the best of both worlds. It's a small town, but it has the Capstone University there, so that means you get interesting speakers and writers and artists that come through. It also meant that Tuscaloosa had a, a well-done sort of community theater group there, Theater Tuscaloosa. Most of its performances happened in this beautiful theater out at Shelton State Community College, the Bean Brown Theater, but it would pull, you know, um, professors from the university, we'd have directors from the the, uh, the drama department at UA and at Shelton, um, and it was always, particularly as a lawyer, sort of funny, lawyers like to think that they're actors, and so you could every so often go and see maybe a judge or the prosecutor um, putting on some costumes and acting uh, in a local play. And so living in Tuscaloosa, um, in spite of its football tradition, also had a lot of sort of fun, quirky culture that went along with it. Now, one year, the local community theater group was doing a production of Godspell. Um, And I wasn't initially interested in going. Godspell, to me, makes me think of that 1970s movie version of it, which is sort of the clownish flower children running around a strangely empty New York City. But as the show opened, People in town, the way they do in a small town, started talking about how good the production was. And so I said, well, you know, maybe it's worth a shot. And so fortunately, I did manage to get tickets for one of the last shows because the dang thing sold out because everybody was talking about it. And I was glad that I did because the young people that were in the show really did an excellent job at the production. It was the sort of the 1990s revitalization of it. So it was not so much like hippies and flower children as it was college students in jeans and t-shirts. But it was very well done. And the young people that were in the play were taking it very seriously what they were doing. And so if you've seen Godspell, either the movie or the production, you might remember that it starts with most of the cast on the stage singing uh, an entering song called the Tower of Babel. And what it is is sort of each character will step forward and they, they are singing sort of the, the synopsis of the great philosophers, right? And then the piece moves together where now it's all of them singing all of this sort of gobbledygook of words all together, right? And it becomes this cacophony on the stage of all of these voices and these words of philosophy. And from that, you hear 
the shofar sound, right? This, this trumpet, this horn that's associated with Judaism. And everything becomes quiet. And then you hear one voice, and that's John the Baptist, singing, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And it's repeated and repeated again. And then finally sort of the rock guitars kick in and we're off to the races with sort of the rock and roll Jesus that God's spell is going to be. But when I read the opening or this, this part of Luke that we have, even though God's spell pulls a lot from the Gospel of Matthew, I think about this moment in the musical with all the racket of the philosophers And then you suddenly hear this very clear voice of John the Baptist. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Luke starts this section the way he's going to start the nativity section of Jesus being born. With essentially a list of historical people that we um, should know. Now we know several of them. At the time, people would have recognized the names even more. It's not there to uh, trick the gospel reader, um, to make us have hard pronunciations. It's not nearly as bad as the Pentecost reading. It's not there to add to the word count. Luke is doing something very specific with this list of names. Is he wants us to know that what he's about to tell us about John the Baptist actually happened in a real place and a real time with real people, specifically in the 15th year of the reign of the emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod was the ruler of the Galilee, his brother Philip was over on the other side, Licinius was over there during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. This is a real time in history, and Luke wants us to feel this sort of zooming in through the historical power of the age, outlining its structure. We have an emperor in Rome, God didn't stop there, right? We have a Roman governor in Judea, God didn't stop there. We have Herod and Philip and Licinius, Roman appointees governing the provinces. God didn't stop there. We have high priests in Jerusalem at the temple, Annas and Caiaphas. God did not stop there. He zooms past all of that to come to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And what John says in the wilderness is prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The word of the Lord breaks through the cacophony of noise and power that is first century Palestine to come to John, who has almost equally a miraculous birth as Jesus, to hear the voice of the Lord once again say, in Judea, prepare the way of the Lord. Now we're going to get two weeks of John the Baptist. Three, if you want to fudge on the fourth week of Advent, because John is sort of there but off screen. I'll wait for you to, to read that reading and you can tell me whether you get what I mean. But this morning we actually get two readings about John, because the Benedictus, the canticle that we read between the Old Testament and the epistle, is the song that John's father sings when God finally lets him talk again. Because that right, the angel comes and says, Elizabeth, your wife, who's too old to have a baby, is going to have a baby, and that baby's going to do big things. And Zachariah was like, eh. And the angel said, well, for that you're going to keep your mouth shut for nine months. 
and maybe start listening to what God wants to do. And so John has been born and God finally opens his mouth to where he can sing this wonderful song of praise. He, se he celebrates his son, right? He knows that John is going to be the prophet of the Most High, but the reason why the Benedictus is such a wonderful song of praise is in that what he is really celebrating is the continued work of God. He praises that God has worked through the prophets and has saved Israel again and again and again. And now Zechariah, after nine months of quiet reflection, is ready to realize that his son John is going to take his place amongst the prophets to again call the people to God. From the Benedictus and from this passage that we get introducing us to John the Baptist, we get context about what John is going to be doing in his preaching and teaching in the wilderness, right? We know that he is calling for the people to repent and to be baptized, to show their repentance. And that this is the way that John, as the prophet of the Lord, is making the path straight as he is preparing the people so that they can see the salvation of God. Now next week we're going to hear a little bit more about what John's message was in a bit more detail. And we see that it gets a little bit more complicated at this. But at the baseline of what John's work of a prophet is, is to prepare people to see that their salvation is coming and has arrived. In the short introduction of John, because John, just like in Godspell, kind of shows up. And then he's going to, we're going to, the story's going to change real quickly. It's going to move on without him. Um, but in this moment, we get important insight into what a vocation of the prophet of the Lord is. Right? We learn from Luke that prophets work in the messiness of real history. Right? They're not outside of time and space. They're not just speaking into generalities. Prophets show up in real times and in real places. And that the work of the prophet is never about the prophet, but is always about pointing towards God, pointing towards the person, the entity, the, 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 the God that sent them, and not just about the prophet. If we get stuck looking at John the Baptist and miss Jesus when he shows up, then the prophet hasn't done the work. And a lot of the artwork of John the Baptist that we get, he's pointing and if he's in the painting with Jesus, he's pointing to Jesus. Even when they're little babies, like pictures of them as babies, John's always pointing at Jesus. And if John is in the painting without Jesus in the frame, he's normally pointing up and out of the frame towards God. In the church, we use the word prophetic a lot. There are a lot of people that think this is a prophetic moment for the church. We look for prophetic preaching and teaching and witness. And what people often mean when they say we need a prophetic church is they're envisioning a certain sort of emotional style and powerful critique of the status quo. It's exciting to show up when a prophetic preacher is there. And we're going to see next week that critique is certainly part of the role of the prophet. But what we learned this week is that the primary function of the prophet is not the critique, it's the pointing. It's the pointing to the God that sent them. It is finding and preparing yourself to be that clear clarion voice that breaks through the cacophony of noise and sound and distractions to say, hey, get ready. 
right? Salvation is coming. It's about pointing to Jesus and not to ourselves. I do think we need more prophets in the church. Our Protestant tradition tells us that we have a priesthood of all believers and our Pentecost tradition tells us that we have all received the power of the Holy Spirit to speak prophecy into the world. And so we need to know what in our individual lives being prophetic looks like. How do we hone and develop that strong voice that not just casts a critique of the current moment, but that invites people into a relationship with Jesus, that points not to the power of this world, but to the power of the reconciling love of God in Christ? How do we, like those young kids in Godspell, take the work that we're given seriously to where we show up and people are compelled to come and listen to the message that we have to offer and what we are to sing and say. Being a prophet is about having a ministry that helps us and the people around us do better, invite people better into the life of God, to be better in our communities so that we can once again this Advent season wait to, with joy to greet the coming of our salvation who is Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.